Good morning and welcome to Spring Meadows Sunday School. We're continuing in our series on ethics, various applications of ethics in the Bible. And today um, I was assigned to speak on ethics of retirement or maybe ethics in retirement. God calls us to redeem the time, the days that God gives us. So the idea of leaving the workforce as our culture says, and having total control of your time is not supported in the Bible. So we'll talk about that a little later. We will discuss the rise of the idea of retirement in the culture and how it is seen within the culture and what should a Christian's response be to the use of our later years. I think of Ephesians 5.15 that says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to use our time productively, and uh, the culture has some different ideas about it. So we're going to talk about that this morning, so let us pray. Father God, we thank you that each day you grant us, we ask that we'd use it wisely. We know that uh, the years, the later years, are times for refreshment and rest, but also we are called to be productive, to not just whittle away the days. So I thank you for this day, Father. I thank you for this time. I pray for those that are in the hospital, for um, uh, Jeff Cliver and for Vic Donovan, that you would have mercy upon them and their families. And Father God, that you would help us to use this time and think about what you would have us to do with our years, not just our work years, but the years beyond. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen. On March 29th, uh, 2021, about 4.58 p.m., I walked into my supervisor's office and handed him my keys and my name badge and that badge, in one form or another, I'd worn for over 36 years with the state. It had given me access to hospitals and nursing homes. All I did was flash it, and uh, I could get in. I also learned with that badge that the HIPAA, the Health Insurance Privacy Act, is, is uh, uh, inconsistently applied. I'd go into hospitals at time and say, I need to see this person record, and the nurse would say, I'm sorry, that's a violation of HIPAA. I'd go to the same hospital a few days later and show the badge, here you go. So we can't always trust that they're applying HIPAA. But that badge in one form or another gave me some weight because I could call Child Protective Services when I served the youth and I could call the Elder Abuse Unit in the later years when I worked with Aging Services. I, show, I showed it to Metro officers, to physicians that had nurses and allowed me access to certain things uh, because I represented the state of Nevada. So I laid the badge on my supervisor's desk and I said to her, I guess all good things must come to an end. And she smiled and thanked me for my service uh, I actually hired her years after I'd already been there, and she had worked her way up to, uh, to run the office. Um, her office was at the back of the suite that we were in, and uh, it had been a weird last year because it was a Zoom year. Uh, Governor uh, Sisolak in March of 2020 on Friday the 13th said, you're shutting it down. And from that point on, we never had all our workers together in the same, same office. So. Uh, I uh, had spent that last year on the computer a lot with my staff. As I left, her office was right at the back of the suite and I closed the door behind me and it was strange because no longer did I have a team reporting to me, I only had to report to Terry Kelly. So it was an adjustment. Some days at work were very, very hard and I had looked forward to the idea of retirement. I'd spent a lot of time talking to coworkers who you know, I, I shared last week in the sermon how many people that I worked with that had what a time clock going in their head, two more years or 20 more months or 16 more weeks before retirement. 
But I think of what Job says in chapter 7. Has not a man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. I can say clearly that my work wasn't like that. There were moments that was not a misery. It was a joy in many ways, especially the last 29 years in serving the senior population. In the United States, there are 52 million people currently who are age 65 or older, according to U.S. Census Bureau data from 2021. This demographic is projected to uh, double in size by 2060 to a whopping 95 million people over the age of 65. That means that it, at that time, if the Lord hasn't returned, that one in five people will be senior citizens. And not only that, but seniors are also predicted to outnumber children in the next 10 years. $2 billion, uh, and that's, that's a conservative estimate, was spent last year marketing to the senior population in two key areas, leisure and medical concerns. Uh, I can't tell you the number of flyers we get for different Medicare plans and for uh, different uh, do doctor groups and so forth. And also, um, lots of circulation, things like um, Carnival Cruises and, um, and, uh, and the other cruise ship lines, the assumption being that now that you're retired, you have you know, total autonomy over your time and you can do whatever you want. Lots of mail relating to how we can better manage our retirement funds. So they, they have us targeted. They have that, that demographic targeted. The evolution of retirement, how it got to be that way, where we believe that we can just you know, have total autonomy over our time and use it for whatever we want, is grounded in inappropriate response to social change. Before the Industrial Revolution, America was essentially an agrarian economy, which means that uh, as a farmer aged, are we getting feedback? As a farmer aged, he could pass on some of the tasks to his children. Um, he wouldn't have to take the full burden of, of working the farm. A, a lot of small businesses would have their children, they'd be grooming their children to pass on that to the next generation. But at, as the late 19th century came on, we saw the rise of the factory. And with the rise of the factory, it brought an industrial revolution that erased such possibilities. Because with the, the spate of new machine-based jobs and assembly lines, suddenly a whole new um, field opened up, which was time motion studies. If you have ever, uh, the, uh, the elders among us might have read this, maybe the youngsters have read it too, but there was a book I loved as a kid called um, Cheaper by the Dozen. It was a story of a family in Ohio uh, back in, in the uh, turn of the century, and the mother and father were both engineers, both held PhDs in industrial engineering, and they were time motion people. So they actually trained their children. Uh, the bathtub back in the day, for those that, <laughs> that only know iPods and so forth, back in the day they had 78 records, and those 78 records ran two and a half minutes, and they expected their children to put a record on, get in the tub, put soap, run down the arm, up, down the leg, back and up here, rinse off and be out of the tub within two and a half minutes, because when you have 12 children, time in the bathroom is precious. So even in their home, the Galbraiths run, ran on a tight schedule. So. What happens is the time motion people start coming into factories and they notice that if you're between 20 and 40, you're pretty good. You can keep up with the assembly line demands. They notice that workers between 40 and 60 started to slow down and had more errors. And after, once you reach 60, you were considered to be a liability. Not totally, but in general. 
So this pressure was on because at the time in the 1900s to the 1930s, there really was no uh, kind of um, addressing this, this population. If you left the workforce and you hadn't saved your money, uh, it was kind of a dire situation. Uh, I will talk a little bit about later about the idea of the workhouses and uh, or poorhouses and alms, almshouses that America had at that time, which actually were established almost with the founding of the country. In the 17th century, you see the, the rise of these places that were meant for those that could no longer work but had couldn't take care of themselves. So with the as I said, with the rise of machine-based jobs, older employees became a liability. Um, you may have heard the name Dr. William Osler. He was a doctor that was the head of uh, McGill University Medical School, and in the late 1890s, he was invited to come and establish the uh, medical training program at Johns Hopkins University. And um, he uh, was very interested in gerontology. Uh, he wrote a book called The Fixed Period, uh, and he had some controversial words about old age. He believed that uh, once you hit 60 years, you really were uh, not as productive and really didn't add to uh, the, the productivity of a factory situation. So he actually wrote this, and I think he wrote it with somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek, that men uh, should be retired by their mid-60s, and after being given a year to settle their affairs, they peacefully should be extinguished by chloroform. <laughs> so he claimed that the effective moving vitalizing work of the world is done between the ages of 25 and 40, and it's all downhill from there. So Osler's speech was covered by the popular press, which headlined the reports was Osler recommends a chloroform for men of 60. The concept of mandatory euthanasia for humans after a fixed period, um, often 60 years, became a recurring theme in the 20th century in different novels. And, um, you know, I shared last week in the sermon, one of the things that's bothered me so much with watching all the political ads is how boldly uh, these politicians have talked about their uh, unfettered support for abortion. Well, when you do that in a culture, you not only impact the unborn, you impact the other end of it. So what we're seeing more in Europe than here uh, is that euthanasia is becoming more and more acceptable. Currently, in uh, Europe, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in South America, in Colombia, in Europe, in Luxembourg, in Canada, India, and South Korea, assisted suicide is lawful. And uh, we see in the U.S., in the states of Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Hawaii, Vermont, Montana, Washington, D.C., and California, assisted suicide is also legitimate. Well, there's protocols in place. Obviously, the person has to clearly be, um, clearly be uh, in, a, in a position where they're at, at the end because of health, cancer, or so forth. But Unfortunately, the system isn't perfect, and there are those that families that have taken uh, this this allowed this ability and uh, kind of pushed it along simply because of the concern that uh, this senior is uh, kind of a, a financial liability, you know, going through the, the family's assets in their last days. So it's a scary thing that that euthanasia is, is becoming more and more acceptable. So you have this situation as the Great Depression comes on. And Roosevelt saw that in Europe, they were already addressing this issue of some kind of income for the elderly. Uh, they developed th this concept that maybe we needed to have some kind of income, and that's where Social Security came about, that uh, once you hit 65, that you could um, you know, 
put money into a system and then retire and have a stipend paid to you so you would not be totally destitute within the culture. Unfortunately, that system is so expanded um, and uh, the idea of putting money in a lockbox long ago went away. Our government b borrows that money. So technically, Social Security today is, is insolvent, although because of creative accounting, uh, they, they somehow keep the payments coming um, because of the monies that current workers are putting into the system. The Social Security website says this, Social Security began as a way to protect American workers from being left totally destitute upon reaching retirement, to continue to have a means for providing for themselves in their old age when more traditional support mechanisms such as family, charity, held assets, and work pensions would fall through. A lot of people didn't, didn't plan. They, didn't, they didn't couldn't, either in their work years, have the kind of money to be able to put something aside and suddenly found themselves without the ability. So this idea of a social security net, the idea of having some kind of um, stipend for, for those that retired so they would not be destitute. If you were destitute, um, it was not a good picture. In the uh, 1700s, you already see some discussion of alms, almshouses. Um, there were what were on, on the books called poor laws, which came to the United States from English settlers in the 1620s. And the idea was that if you were worthy poor, in other words, if you had done nothing uh, yourself to, to, to put yourself in this situation, that maybe some kind of minimal aid could be provided to you. If you couldn't uh, find a family member or another living situation to be in, then they had what were called almshouses. And then as the years went on, they became known as poor houses. Meeting the eligibility requirement of these poor laws was not e easy. Widows or elderly who were well known in the town were often granted small amounts of aid, usually food or fuel, but many people, particularly unemployed men who looked able to work, including many today we would see as mentally disabled, and women who were judged as immoral, in other words, um, had, had in, in the culture not seen to be living a moral life, were denied that kind of relief. So gradually, American reformers hoped to move these, uh, those considered the undeserving poor into almshouses or poorhouses. I remember my mother using the phrase, you know, if, you, if we keep this up, we're going to be in the poorhouse. So within the culture, this idea of um, a place where the destitute went was well known in the 19th century and into the 20th century. So the idea, you know, the idea of Social Security was, was meant to, you know, be an answer to that. Uh, whether, um, whether that... Uh, a lot of debate as to whether that that is uh, you know working as well today. We know that in the 1970s they expanded the definition so that uh, those that are disabled or have a perceived disability can apply to uh, get Social Security disability, which also put a large drain on the system. So there's lots of lawyers. Then that's all they practice is social dis Social Security disability law. Have you been denied Social Security disability? Well, come to you know Bob Smith Law Firm and he will advocate for you. To get, to get your Social Security disability. <coughs> As David Rothman documented, the reformers in the time of uh, the 19th century dreamed of a utopian world in which almshouses as well as the mental asylum, prison or penitentiary, and orphanages were positive institutions which would reform the characters of the people who were poor or deviant and which would serve as a model for citizens who were not incarcerated. Today, experts generally do not believe institutions provide rehabilitation. And wha so what we've seen is, and this happened in, in, um, uh, under the Reagan years, 
you know, with some of the best intention to open the doors of these places, especially the mental hospitals, that it was uh, a form of incarceration. So now we see the outpouring of that. You go down to Los Angeles on Skid Row on Fifth and Wall, and you see hundreds of tents of people living on the streets. And every major American city is, you know, dealing with this problem. Um, <coughs> it's interesting that one of the two most famous almshouses started in uh, one in New York and one in Chicago. The one in New York morphed into Bellevue Hospital. Bellevue actually started as an almshouse for the indigent. And also, uh, Cook County Alms House became Cook County Hospital. Um, they were large; other they were examples of very large poor houses where many, many were housed. Over time, for most of the 19th century, unemployed men came in and out of the poor houses, and a large permanent population of people, including the aged, mentally and physically disabled, constituted the bulk of the inmates uh, that lived in these. By the 1880s, the fear of the poor houses being in the place to die had so permeated the American culture that there was actually a popular song called Over the Hill to the Poor House. Um, and the lyrics went something like this. Over the hill to the poor house, I'm trudging my weary way. I'm a woman of 70 and only a trifle gray. I who am smart and chipper for all the years I've told, as many another woman that's only half as old. What is the use of heaping on me a pauper shame? Am I lazy or crazy? Am I blind? Am I lame? True, I am not so supple, not yet so awfully stout. But charity ain't no favor if no one can live without. Over the hill to the poorhouse, my children dear goodbye. And many a night I've watched you when only God was nigh. And God will judge between us, but I'll always pray that you'll never suffer the half I do today. So this great fear of you know, ending up in the poorhouse, that was, that was not you know, where, where you wanted to be. Um, in some ways, the story of these almhouses differed from local almhouses due to the size and state sponsorship. Different states had different rules about how you could access them. And um, this, you know, well into the 1930s, they, they still, you know, had the, the idea of the, the almhouses. Um, so we see this kind of bias begin to emerge with the time studies in factories that, that older employees are just not, uh, not as valued. And so what do you do if you're a man, and at that time very few women were in the factories, but a man or a woman that, that, that lost their job because of it and hadn't you know, provided for themselves. Um, so we see these social props start, social security, and uh, <coughs> the idea of you know, retirement, of, of saving for retirement. And what begins to emerge in the 1950s is this idea that retirement should be uh, this <coughs> kind of idealized place where you have autonomy over your time, where you can decide what you want to do with your time and spend it, you know, generally in vacations or travel or doing whatever, whatever you so desire. Uh, <coughs> I read several pieces by writers that write on retirement, and they talk about kind of the downside of retirement. And I've, I've touched a little bit on this in my, my own experience. I'm not to two years yet, but... I can see where some of these things could happen. They said the first phase of retirement is relief. You um, suddenly have, um, you, you've been disengaged from all the worries of, of turning on the computer when you go to work in the morning. I remember the first morning I was office like, oh, I don't have to address 50 emails. <laughs> I don't have to have people coming in my office and telling me their problems. And uh, I don't have to deal with all the, 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 the various headaches that, that being a supervisor did. So w there was a sense of relief. But they say that after a year, that gets very tiresome, that after the 
first year, you begin to real miss those relationships. There's a realization of what they call disengagement. You start missing some of the aspects of work. Work gives you structure. Work gives you relationships. Um, they, it gives you the ability to be able to use those skills that God has given you and, and to uh, be able to influence others. So what sets in is the third stage, which is a kind of depression, with people kind of wondering, you know, what is, what, what do I do with my life? What, what, what should I be doing productively? And uh, hopefully this leads to the fourth stage, because for some it ends at the third stage. You know, th there's a high rate of suicide amongst retirees. The fourth stage, though, is reconnection, where people find um, things that they can volunteer and they find meaning. They find things that, that where they can use their skills and find themselves productive again. I really encourage, you know, and we're going to talk now about kind of the biblical view of things um, in terms of what God calls us to do with these years. Um, on the second thing on your outline, I said, what is the biblical view? The short answer is that the Bible doesn't mention retirement. Age and infirmity could limit work opportunities, but there is nothing in Scripture that indicates a person should work a certain number of years, save money, and suddenly stop working, and then enjoy a life of leisure. Right? Um, Numbers 8, 24, 26 is the only verse that even kind of hints at this, and this really wasn't retirement. It was saying that those that were called to temple work should work to a certain year, and then after that, mentor those that... Um, we're continuing on in the work of the temple, the priests, the Levites in the temple. So in Numbers 8, 24, 26 says, this applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So the understanding was there was a lot. You know, when you think about going to the altar and, and the, the sacrifice of animals and all the dimensions of that. Um, so at the age of 50, you could slow down. You still were there to mentor the younger Levites, but, but you didn't have the full weight of the duty to do it. Um, we know in the culture that the Bible calls us to have respect for the elderly, Psalm 71:18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation your power to all those that come. Leviticus 19.32 says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. So what examples do we have? Moses. Moses was called to uh, serve and uh, lead his people out of Egypt at 80. Now, there's, you know, some discussion in the Bible that the years, that uh, the biblical years, you know, were very different, that, that People didn't have to deal with all the diseases, but still, it's an indication that God required that Moses be productive at that age. It wasn't until he was 80 years old at Exodus 77 that God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. The first 40 years of Moses' life, as we know, were spent in Egypt, learning from, from um, the Egyptian court uh, about um, the, the things that were required for a young Egyptian, a young Egyptian um, member of the court to know. When he was 40, we know that he left that left that court. He killed the Egyptian and became um, a pariah within Pharaoh's court, and, and due to this impulsive act, he was forced to flee. He became, for the next 40 years, working as a shepherd for his father-in-law in Midian. And when Moses was 80 years old, he was told to return to Egypt so he'd free the Israelites from slavery. So that example certainly doesn't say that, uh, that's, that 
retirement should be uh, one of you know free use of my time. Moses was called to be productive, and we know uh, from the biblical um, um, exposition in Exodus that, that indeed Moses Moses um, honored what God had called him to do. Another example, Daniel. It's believed by biblical scholars that when Daniel went in the lion's den, he was probably well into his 80s. That Daniel was very faithful in serving for years and years in the Babylonian court, and later the you know the court of the the Persians. So Daniel was an older man and was a, a, a someone that uh, mentored the younger men, and uh, you know did not shy away from God's call. Uh, in the Book of Revelation. Um, John on <coughs> the island of Patmos is believed that John by that time was 90 years old, that he was not a young man. And when he saw the revelation you know, of, of, of uh, the second coming and all the, the wonderful visions that are described in Revelation around AD 95, he would have been uh, you know, well, well into his 90th year. So the Bible says at Colossians 4, 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I think that's really kind of the, the overarching call that we have in the Bible, that God calls us to use our time, whether it be young, middle-aged, or old. We are, we're called to use our days, you know, to not um, winnow them away. In 1 Timothy 5.12, Paul gives Timothy an overall idea of aging. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, all in purity. Younger men and women should be like siblings. Older men and women should be like parents. They're there to mentor. Timothy, who was to respect his elders and gain wisdom from them, <coughs> inferring that the older the person, the more they would take on a mentorship role. In the same way, a woman older than 60 could receive a pension of sorts from the church. It's talked about, you know, there. And also, uh, but only if she had no family to support her and she continued serving the Lord and other believers. Um, you know, the Bible, you know, points this out, that there is to be some kind of um, um, structure in place to meet the needs of the elderly that can't take care of themselves. We also have an example in, in the um, first... Uh, the second chapter of Luke, where Simeon and Anna were both working in the temple well into their age. In, in Luke 2, 25 to 38, we read about them. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from where she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him of all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't quit work and live off a pension as long as you continue to serve where you are, to, to serve where you're planted whether that would be with extended family or um, with um, you know, the various ministries. Uh, we had an elder here, a dear elder, that some of our uh, older members remember, uh, Dean Haywood, and until he was into his 80s, he was going out to Indian Springs Prison every week and sharing the gospel. And he did a class that was focused on the Reformed faith. And out of that class, he had two students, one that's now a seminary graduate, Tony you may remember Tony, and uh, also Will, um, 
Will Nelson, who was uh, a great blessing to this church because he learned how to be an air conditioning repairman <coughs> while, while he was in Indian Springs. And when he came out, he uh, used that skill to serve many in this church that when their systems broke down. He was also a man that would tell you more about air conditioning than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> if, you asked, if you asked Will how come it broke down, he would give you an answer. And about after the second sentence, I <coughs> lost what he was saying. So, but I was always glad he was there, and he was uh, more than willing, and he would drop everything. So that, that kind of you know, service to the church is what God calls us to. So you look at your skill set. You look at what God allows you to do. Certain uh, people, obviously because of health issues, are limited in doing that, but that doesn't mean you can't be involved in a prayer ministry. You know, the, the ability to be able to serve others with prayer is, is vital, you know, to be able to have that, that quiet time, to have no demand on your schedule and to sit there. Um, we have, you know, we have the prayer meeting on Thursday nights. I keep a, a list, and if you'd like me to send out that, that uh, prayer list to you, if you aren't already receiving it, please let me know. But there's always issues in the church and outside the community of the church to be able to pray for, and that is a great thing to be able to do as a retiree. Um, we know that in Acts 5, there was a problem because the widows were not being served. It says in Acts 5, Verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that adopted the Greek language and culture among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So that is the, the seed that we have for our diaconate. And our diaconate here, I'm very thankful, you know, it just serves a lot of needs. But most of our deacons are in their retirement years, you know, uh, with exceptions with Mark and, and with, uh, with Joe. But that, 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 you know, serves a vital, a vital role to be able to be able to kind of drop everything because you don't have the works of demand, the, the, uh, the work schedule um, that, that impedes you from being able to do those kind of service. Um, you know, when we think about the, the culture's idea that, you know, you have autonomy over your time and you can do whatever you want, um, that, that is very empty, you know, and I, I've talked to retirees that said, oh yeah, I went on this trip and I did this and I took this cruise, and then it was like <coughs> the old Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? You know, there, there's an emptiness apart from the Lord. So we have a real benefit in, in being believers and knowing that God expects that in, in these years, that we will use those years productively. So I, I was going on the MTW, the Mission, uh, Mission to the World website, the PCA's missionary arm. And I also encourage you, I've, I've asked uh, some people here to, and I put this out to you, if you're very interested in missions, we're trying to develop a missions board for Spring Meadows to kind of more, more formalize our support of missions. Um, and this article was in the um, Mission to the World uh, website by uh, Dick Senig, who's a long-term PCA member. And he says this, what does retirement mean to you? That's the question my wife Sue and I face as we neared our 64th birthday. Our nest had been empty for several years. We were in reasonably good health and our commitment to Christ and his church remained strong. But our retirement years loomed on the horizon. How would our retirement change our lives? It's an important question because many retirees are more concerned with funding their retirement than what they will actually do when they retire. 
And as for Christians, the question is particularly important since the retirement doesn't change our loyalty to Jesus or the imperative of the Great Commission to the church to make disciples of all nations. So my wife and I decided that we would not look at retirement as quitting or stopping or even slowing down. We didn't buy the idea that retirement should be a life of entitled leisure that we'd earned over the years. <clears throat> Rather, as we talked and prayed, we came to realize that retirement was a unique opportunity for a job change. All we needed to do was to find our new kingdom jobs. Our motto became, don't re retire, but redeploy. Redeployment will look different for everyone because God has put each of us in a unique situation of his design. But the critical factor for any believer's retirement is to recognize our primary loyalty to Christ and to seek his kingdom first in this new and often more flexible stage of our lives. <coughs> Here it is how it unfolded for us. First, we began by assessing our situation, family obligations, financial status, health, giftedness, skills, and experience were all obvious areas to consider. But it was also a time to take stock of our spiritual gifts and how the Lord had used us over the years. In short, how had God uniquely equipped us to be redeployed in his service at home or internationally at this stage of our lives? From the start, we recognized that a natural pull towards international missions, since both of us were raised in churches with strong mission ties. Another contributing factor was my early work experience as a faculty member of Wheaton College Graduate School and related travels to teach where I previously taught in both Africa and South America. We were also blessed in our family life with our two children married and walking with the Lord. Meanwhile, God had been preparing me with teaching, communication, computer, and business skills, along with a lifetime of service in the church, including 20 years as a ruling elder. But our retirement also turned up a point of caution. We had made a major commitment to Sue's elderly mother, who had moved close to us so we could care for her. We knew that with her declining health, she would become increasingly dependent on us, and we needed to be there for her a fact that became Sue's primary ministry. We also did a financial assessment. Given the complexities of retirement plans and government regulations, we turned to a financial planner specializing in retirement. With their, with their expert advice, we entered the new phase of our lives knowing that God provided for us. So our next step was to engage with our local church, Park City's Presbyterian Church. This is the biblical way to move in any ministry and be in step with our church vision for missions. While not every church is well equipped to do this, it is important to establish a strong relationship with your home church, leading to leadership so they can help you evaluate your call and your gifts, offer encouragement, and point you to helpful resources. MT, MT, the mission to the world uh, has regional hubs, for example, where you can go and uh, go to seminars that have you to help you to assess your skills and what, what areas you might be most effective in, in serving in missions. We met with the leader of our church missions ministry and explained how God was moving in our lives. He encouraged us to pursue our emerging calling, offered valuable advice, and affirmed the church support for us. We also realized the need to increase our exposure to foreign missions. We began by taking the Perspectives on World Missions Movement course hosted by our church. It was like a big dose of missionary vision vitamins to us, reacquainting us with many aspects of world missions that we'd encountered years before including the biblical foundations for missions, as well as new trends and opportunities in the world. Then I was asked to serve on the church's mission committee for a period, and eventually I joined our church's short-term mission trip to the West African country of Senegal. Shortly after retiring in 2012, Mission of the World invited me to be a part of a team that visited three Western African countries to assess the opportunities for a business as missions program. The third step on that trip to, on that trip to was Senegal was my second visit of the year. 
While there, God spoke to me, confirming a call to serve along with other mi Mission to the World missionaries to assist the growing national church in Senegal and West Africa to realize the vision God had given them to reach the lost. As a result, we became volunteer and non-resident missionaries. Now, 10 years later, and more than 30 international trips later, I've taught classes on a variety of, a variety of subjects ranging from drip irrigation to the role and work of elders in the church. I preached, worked on project plans, and we spent precious hours with national church leaders in West Africa, humbled by their testimonies of faithfulness in the face of great persecution, and encouraged by the vision God has given them. Laughed, danced, and cried with my brothers and sisters there, and I've seen missionary life up close and personal, as together with my MTW colleagues on the field, we forge deep relationships with our national partners. And when I'm not traveling, I'm able to support our missionaries from home, freeing them from administrative work so they have more time to exercise their gifts directly with the national churches they serve. How gracious of the Lord to allow us to assist the men and women on the front lines of building his kingdom in West Africa. As a board member of the West African Reformed Mission, WARM, MTW's partnership with West African National Churches, I care for WARM's finances. But as age takes its inevitable toll in health and strength, we are aware that there will be fewer overseas trips in my future. But that doesn't mean finally retiring. It simply means another redeployment and already new opportunities to serve our Lord is emerging, some of which broke on our experience in the last 10 years. The last two verses of the hymn, Jesus Master, Whose I Am, by Francis Havergal, are especially dear to me. Jesus Master, whom I serve, though so feebly and so ill, strengthen my hand and heart and nerve, all thy bidding to fulfill. Open thou mine eyes to see all the work that thou hast for me. Lord, thou needest not, I know service such as I can bring. Yet I long to prove and show full allegiance to my king. Thou in honor art to me. Let me be a praise to thee. So his last encouragement is the job isn't finished and neither are we. So until the Lord calls us home, we'll redeploy as he directs us and serves him with the strength he provides. And then he provides the uh, mission website, which as many of you know is mtw.org. Uh, and then it, in that website explains different opportunities you have. Not necessarily to go in the field, but how you can serve in country. So this idea of redeployment really, you know, is, is something that should engage us. You know, God has called us to use the days, use the days effectively. Um, the cultural idea of, you know, being able to, you know, sit back and do whatever we want is not something that, that the Bible supports. So that is my take on the ethics of retirement. Use your time productively, no matter what years you're at, but especially in the retirement years, to be able to serve the Lord however, however you can. You know, the idea for me right now is, um, you know, because of the limitations of my knee, once I get my knee done, I'm kind of thinking about, you know, how I can, you know, serve in the community. I, I, say I, shared, a, I shared a few weeks ago something that I kind of resisted at first, but that God brought me up, and that was going out to uh, be able to pray with a woman that was dying. You know, that, that kind of freedom I had is because my brother elders were all working, and I had the ability to be able to do that. So to be able to listen to that call and be open to how we can, you know, do things like um, visit those in hospital, visit those that are in the nursing home, um, you know, visit those that, that, um, that are lonely, you know, I, when I was working for the Division of Aging, one of the great problems I saw among the elderly was great loneliness. You know, people that sat at home, the phone never rang, and the idea of someone that would come in and sit with them and talk with them became a great, 
you know, a great blessing to them to be able to um, share with them and listen to their stories. And I got to hear some great stories. In fact, I really am sad now. Uh, this week, I don't know if you saw in the paper, but we lost our last Pearl Harbor survivor at 99, the last gentleman for that lived in Las Vegas that was actually um, at Hickam Field on the day that the Japanese attacked at Pearl Harbor. So I think the, the uh, Veterans Administration states that any given day we're losing about 250 World War II vets. There's less than 18,000 of them left. So they're marching away from us, you know, that, that demographic. So use your time productively, redeem the time, you know, ask God to show you how you can use uh, not only your work years, but, but especially your retirement years, you know, for his kingdom. So questions or observations? Any hands? Yes, Dave. So that's not to say, though, that you and Terry can't take a cruise, right? <laughs> no, uh, Terry has this thing against cruise ships ever since, ever since COVID. <laughs> so I can't speak for my wife. Maybe she'll change the idea. Maybe it was a small cruise ship, you know? But uh, yeah, that, that's the zeitgeist you get in the culture, you know? We get bulletins or brochures all the time for how to spend your retirement years, you know? And it, it's all about you know, having autonomy in your time and doing what you want to do. And I don't think that's what God's calling us to do. You know, these years are, are precious years, and we can use them much more productively. Not that we can't do those things. Not that we can't, you know, what did Tim just do? Tim and Pam had the wonderful experience of being able to go on that Ligonier cruise. You know, and that, that is a wonderful thing. So, other questions? Observations? Paul. Uh, I just, I, this morning, I, I didn't know you were going to talk about this, but I uh, read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards on Ephesians 5, 16, and uh, I recommend it to everyone um, who listened to you talk, because I think it, uh, you know, builds on a lot of what you were saying, but it's, it, it's titled on the, the preciousness of time and the importance of redeeming it, um, and it's, it's just, uh, really spoke to me about how I need to consider how I how I spend my time and he makes the point that it's uh, our most precious resource because we only have so much of it and we don't know how much we have mm -hmm. and as we get older uh, you know we, we need to consider not only how we've spent the time that we've had been given to that point but um, you know, we need to make the most of the time that we have left to improve ourselves and uh, and others for eternity. So uh, you can you can Google it and find it for free. It's like uh, you know, thirty minute read or so. It's actually one of his shorter ones. Based on Ephesians five. Yeah, yeah. I I have an example of that. You know, we don't know our time. I, I dealt with a lady. Uh, I worked with a lady through Catholic Charities, and um, this is about 18 years ago now it's quite a but I called her we were going to meet to talk about um, the senior companion program and she asked me to come down to Catholic Charities the next day so I had it on my schedule that morning that night she was driving home and if you can uh, picture where 95 and um, Rancho is she was driving along in her uh, Saturn coupe and a guy uh, on the eastbound side in a, a pickup truck was 
going, doing what we see all the time in Las Vegas, you know, going back and forth between cars very erratically. And suddenly the traffic in front of him stopped and he hit his brakes and as a result he came over the top of the median and fell on her car and she was killed. So I called Catholic Charities the next day and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming for the appointment and they told me, well, you know, she passed last night. So none of us are guaranteed. We don't, we don't know the hours that God has provided for us. That's why each day, you know, my, my life verse is Psalm 9012. You know, teach us a number of our days, Lord, that may we gain a heart of wisdom. No, ga- no, no day is guaranteed, and we are to use them productively. So, yes, Miss Brittany. Ah. <laughs> with my parents every week, but I was allowed to go sit with him during service sometimes. Uh-huh. And every week when I walked up, the first thing he would ask me was what I was learning in school. And then usually he had a book for me. Mm. And he, um, he gave me Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, which I can say now is one of the reasons that I chose to become a writer is because of those. So his continuous ensuring and it was just it was five minutes every Sunday mm-hmm. but his continuous ensuring that I loved books and I had books um, affected the outcome of my life mm-hmm. in a very large way and it was it was just five minutes every week mm-hmm. but um, it, it had a huge impact we have no idea the seeds that we plant yeah he did the same thing he taught Karen very patiently to read and I was always bringing books to Catherine and to Karen and Catherine when they were small so but that, that prison ministry, you know, t- uh, Tony a- has been a real advocate for um, the uh, witnessing in the community. You know, Tony used to go up to uh, Temple Square and take on the LDS folks in, in, in friendly dialogues, you know, never, never, never in an angry way, but he used to, sh- to share, you know, in, in his faith with them. And he'd go on the strip. Um, I never went with him, but I always thought it was very bold. He'd go on the strip and engage people, you know, about the gospel. And uh, now, you know, he's a seminary graduate. So that was a correct result of Dean Haywood's ministry there in, in the prison. Yeah. Yeah, Tony, Tony Rogers has used his gifts, gifts wisely. So, all right, so redeem the time. And uh, maybe one cruise, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you provide the days to us. And we ask that you would help each of us to know how best we can use them. Help us to be wise in the administration of them. Father, help us to uh, always be open to uh, chances for ministry, to be sensitive to how you're calling us. Even though, as Moses questioned at the burning bush, how could I, a man of of, um, not eloquent words, do this? And God showed him. So, Father, help us to know our gifts and to be able to be yielded and willing to use them for the kingdom. We thank you for this time. We thank you that Tim is back today, Father. We thank you that we can participate in the Lord's table. May this time be that which encourages us and help us to be fully engaged in hearing your word. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you all.